0: Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about Kenneth Frampton and architecture history. This is a different kind of episode, but one that I enjoyed uh quite a bit. Over the last few years, I've interviewed dozens and dozens of architecture and design critics and writers and historians. But this is an episode that's actually about an architecture critic. This episode is all about the legendary architect, writer, teacher, critic, historian, Kenneth Frampton. I'm joined today by Carla Britton and Robert McCarter, the editors of a fascinating new book, Modern Architecture and the Life World, Essays in Honor of Kenneth Frampton. To celebrate Frampton's 90th birthday just this past November, Robert and Carla published this book with Tames and Hudson that's just packed with essays that respond to, expand upon, are in dialogue with, and are in honor of Frampton and Frampton's work. If you are in architecture, Frampton's work needs no introduction. His books on architecture, history, and theory are on the shelves of countless architects around the world, and his influence as a teacher and as a Uh, promoter of the sometimes overlooked architects has truly inspired and influenced a generation of architects and honestly has shaped much of the architecture discourse. As someone outside of architecture, just outside of architecture, I was only somewhat familiar with Frampton's work. I knew who he was, and I had read a few of his essays, but what I'm embarrassed to admit is how little I understood the range of his thinking. Frampton truly saw architecture as connected to everything else, to politics, to economics, to the environment, to culture, and his writing connected all of those things. He was writing about environmental issues, women in architecture, and the political dimension of the built environment long before it was popular. So in this episode, I talk with Robert and Carla about Frampton and about Frampton's work. We talk about his influence on the profession, why he always referred to himself as an architect who writes, and where he developed his critical positions. We also talk about how this book came together and what they hope to do with it. It's a great conversation. If you are not familiar with Frampton's work, hopefully we'll provide you Uh, a way in to this incredible body of work. In many ways, he is kind of the epitome of what we've been talking about when we talk about design criticism over the last couple of years. Don't forget, Scratching the Surface is made possible because of listener support. If you enjoy this show and wanna help support it, you can become a member for just $5 a month or $50 a year. These memberships help keep the show going and members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that I think of as the director's commentary for the show. It includes reflections on the episodes, bonus content, exclusive interviews, and all sorts of other fun things. If you wanna help the show, if you wanna see it continue, I hope you consider becoming a member. You can visit scratchingthesurface.fm slash members for all the details. Thanks again for listening, and here is my wonderful conversation with Carla Britton and Robert McCarter. I want to start by talking a little bit about the the origins of this book, this project. You have this this newish book, Modern Architecture in the Life World, essays in honor of Kenneth Frampton, and it's a really kind of fascinating project uh, and I think it's it, it's hard enough to get a book published about you know architecture and design criticism these days I think it's even harder to have a book that is kind of about or in honor of another <laughs> architecture design writer uh, in your intro you you call the book a act of resistance can you talk a little bit about where this book came from or where this project came from and kind of how it got started
1: well, I think um, from the start, we received some, um, you know, raised eyebrows about doing uh, a project that um, many people thought was um, somewhat anachronistic, that is um, a kind of sustained celebratory piece of writing that um, that honors the work of, of Kenneth Frampton. And I think many people thought that that kind of project is at odds with the very fleeting character of um, public discourse today. Um, And so, I think from the get-go, the the, um, project was based on this idea that we had to um, convince people um, from the start that our um, ambitions were larger than just um, paying honor to to Ken, in some ways, the project really sets out to trace a terrain um, of debates of, of discourses in architecture that um, that has happened over the last four decades, and and it, it does seek to address challenges that I think uh, we feel architects will continue to confront uh, in the future. Um, so yeah so from the get-go i think well, there was this idea that we needed to address uh what some people would call kind of an outmoded um project of the Festschrift. script of
2: course there's also the fact that kenneth frampton has uh, produced an enormous number of books <laughs> right and uh we were well aware that um in order to honor him it would be uh it would be worth trying to, uh, have an, have a book that could be added to this. Um, and what's interesting is that, uh, you know, uh, the book as a kind of festschrift, which is often a kind of festival of, of writing in honor of someone, uh, whether they're retiring in this case, it had to be to do with, uh, thought about doing something for his 90th birthday, which was this November. Um, but the, the notion of of a book, uh, I would say, uh, is a bit of an act of resistance at this point, um, <laughs> but it's an act of resistance that, that feathers in very well with his own belief in the power of books and, um, right. and, uh, and his participation in a, a sort of a, innumerable books that he's made some kind of contrib- contribution to over the years in terms of uh, writing them or ma- writing forwards and other his his um i mean his activity has really shown that books still have uh, a power um even in the ever increasing rise of the the digital world that books have a kind of power to um to create discourse and to uh, or a space for discourse around the book so um we felt because uh, there were of course there could be many ways that he is his 90th birthday and other kinds of um events in his life could be celebrated but we thought this would be the most appropriate for us to take on
0: yeah yeah i think that i think that's um i think that's right you have a line somebody has a line in the book and i, I forget who said it, it might have been in your introduction i'm sorry i can't remember I, I didn't make a note of it about how it's almost uh rare for there to be an architecture book that doesn't have a kenneth frampton uh intro <laughs> in it than than one that does um well, it's, you a know, little,
2: it's a little more pointed than that it actually is What's the definition of a rare book? in And right. <laughs> it's a book without a Kenneth Frampton forward right. or introduction. Right. So, I mean, it was actually because I was around when that was first coined, and it was it was it was meant to have an edge to it because it was true that there there really wasn't anything sitting on the shelf in a bookstore that didn't have his name somewhere in it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that. Can I mean, so I have a couple questions in in that answer that I'd like to kind of pull out and talk about a little bit more, but I think just you know, this I imagine most of the people who listen to this show are familiar with uh, with Kenneth Frampton and his work. But you know, there are listeners across all kind of fields of design. So just to to frame this a little bit, can you talk about uh, who Kenneth is and also why why he deserves this this honor, or, or what it was about kind of his work and writing that that helped uh, kind of jumpstart this project?
1: Well, I mean. Uh... You know, just um, I think a very simple definition is that he is this um, respected scholar, uh, teacher, a practitioner, uh, somebody who has um, created a lifetime of work about um, the act of building as a as as really a, a project as a matter of um, of really important cultural significance, uh, and given this very expansive uh, body of work and his, um, I don't know, five decades of teaching, he has uh, really, I think, um, impacted so many individuals um, in the architecture world and its related fields. Um, and. Um And the book, I think is is in part um, a means of trying to call attention to um, to really the expansiveness of his thought, the way that he um, saw or understands architecture as being about um, all things, um, you know, politics and craft and um, the local context and, um, global, um, development and certainly landscape and technology. Mm-hmm. And given, um, the breadth of that interest, um, he is, uh, an individual who I think has been able to touch, um, uh, the lives of, of people in all different, um, fields. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think too, you know, he is very much, a, a public intellectual. Right. So he's somebody who, um, you know, I think is very um, aware of his um, of the power of, of being able to represent or articulate uh, a message um, to the public about um, about the importance of the built environment uh, and that role of, of public intellectual um is is really reinforced by uh his uh his outspokenness uh his engagement with the world certainly his his scholarship um and a word that keeps coming up um again and again is his his generosity i think his Mm -hmm. generosity in in sharing um his ideas with his with students um the way that he is able to connect with um people from all different kinds of of backgrounds uh, and in in that way he is um, i think quite a unique um type of intellectual because he has really provided many many of us with the tools to think with um, and that's been extremely valuable
2: yeah i would i would add also that his his output uh is is quite broad in the sense that he's the author of the best-selling history of modern architecture in the world i i don't even know that it's how many languages has been translated to but i think approaching 40 or 50. um and then it's come out in its fifth edition uh which he says will be the last but you never know um actually you know also by thames and hudson at this time at the same time which is an interesting coincidence um and that book of is 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 A a part of, I would say, you know, I mean, very few architecture students around the world at some point that don't that don't have that book uh, as part of their education. But then he's also written a series of books and essays like the Critical Regionalism Mm -hmm. essay, as well as the Studies in Tectonic Culture, which are also used in schools. But I think that they have had an equal or perhaps greater impact on the profession um, in that uh, what he has done, particularly in the tectonic culture book is to reframe how it is that architects practicing architects, which he considers himself to be one of how they, uh, view history because they don't view history in the same way as people trained in classical art history. They actually view it from the point of view of, of how the made object and the way that it's made can articulate a certain position and can, um, embed itself in the life world in terms of how we experience it. Um, and that's a, a sort of an analytical approach, um, based in experience that is just, is just largely absent from uh, more, I would call sort of distanced, uh, modes of, of, uh, apprehension and, and analysis. And I think it's, it, it's also led to the fact that he has across his career, um, sought out architects who whose work was of a very high quality, but were often overlooked
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, in the sort of uh, stylistic or sort of journalistic structure um, of of critique. And uh, I, I would mention people like uh, Alvaro ziza who who is, uh, you know went on to win the Prixco Prize. But when he was first written about by by um, Frampton, almost no one knew him outside of. I would say no one, in fact, knew him outside of. Uh, uh, Portugal, and um, and he still practices in Portugal at pretty much in the same way he always did. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could name many, many other architects. Um, so it's there's also a sort of proactive um, uh, approach in the sense that he wants to highlight sort of practices that he think he thinks actually have a lot of merit and a lot of um, promise as a kind of. Um, Model for other practices or a model, so there is there is this this uh, creative aspect to it, I guess you could say, or a constructive aspect, which is yeah. more like the mind of an architect and and, um, and of course he 's very upfront, and we put it early in the essay in the introduction of the book that he he thinks of himself as an architect who writes he right. writes from the point of view of an architect, uh, even though his practice has been relatively minimal and mostly towards the beginning of his career, it is true that when we we were all at Columbia together, Carla and I, and Kenneth, uh, all sharing one small suite of offices in the '80s. Um, that Kenneth um, took a year off and worked for Richard Meyer uh, as a as what he called a geriatric retrainee, <laughs> humbly called himself. I know this because my wife was working with Richard at that time, and they they had a lot of interaction in the office. But mm-hmm. I asked him at one point why he would do that, you know, at, his, at that age. Um, and he said, you know, I, I don't understand. I'm, I'm beginning to lose track of how contemporary buildings are actually put together—the really complicated ones. And he would call me from Meyer's office certain days, and he would say, you know, you, I can't believe what's in the floor package. You know, what's <laughs> yeah. between the floor and the ceiling of a of a typical sort of contemporary office building? He said, I just can't believe what's there. It's it's and it, it's and it's just like a kid. Uh, you know, he's yeah. just learning all again, and and uh, it just isn't that 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 level of engagement and uh, his ability to come at it almost like he's a green architect again, so to speak. Um, right. I mean, green in the old sense of the term. Um, uh, I think it's, it's one of the unique things It's why his, uh, cri- criticism and his, his whole approach is, is, it's always fresh, I think. And I think, uh, I- very willing to laugh at himself and, you know, and, and mm-hmm. to sort of a little bit, sometimes even make fun of the, the, uh, or sort of, you know, bat away the sort of notion that he has any real power um to uh, he finds it uh, he finds it kind of humorous sometimes but I, I think that that uh that's why the book actually has quite a number of architects who've written which is not at all normal for these kinds of books i would say um it's normally sort of the province of the of the historians and the critics and there are very good ones in the book of, of those types as well but you have a lot of Architects, And this was just the tip of the iceberg of the architects that we could have included that would consider the impact of his writings on their work, whether directly by his uh, pr- promoting their work, so to speak, or writing about it like he did about Ziza's work, or
0: mm-hmm.
2: or whether they, you know, like Brad Culfield talks about that they, you know, they encountered him in, in at the university and then basically the ideas from tectonic culture and critical regionalism were were put into play in the in the work in a conscious way in the in the work of the office.
0: Yeah, I want to I want to come back to to this idea of of him considering himself a, an architect who writes. But while you're talking about the architects uh, who contributed to the book, I, I do have a question about that kind of uh, editorial process because something Robert that you also said earlier is that um, and and Carla, you were saying this as well that this was not meant to be. This wasn't meant to kind of promote celebrity or promote his identity in some way, but really in dialogue with his ideas, which I think really comes through in the book. And I I was surprised how many uh, practicing architects contributed. Can you talk just briefly about um, kind of how you selected the contributors that you did and how you Mm -hmm. how you've kind of found that balance between both honoring him, but also uh, kind of expanding on his ideas and furthering his ideas and and having essays that are, you know, I, it's interesting the range of 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 pieces because there are kind of responses to his work. There's work that's about him. There's pieces that are influenced by him. Um, how did you kind of think about how all that comes together?
2: You know, we worked on the book for um, around 10 years, but maybe mm-hmm. only the last three years with a great intensity um but we started with something like 100 and some names i don't remember carla actually had the first list she probably could pull it up but um and then of course we realized that we'd left another 500 off the list and um <laughs> and uh because uh it it's 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 an impossible task and then of course the publisher had other ideas about the number of people that might be involved in the book once we came to the publisher hmm. um but uh uh I think what we wanted was a range we did not well i guess in a couple of cases we made a sort of slight suggestion of what people might do in particular with the architects Mm. um if if they didn't have a sort of if they didn't sort of jump at the thing with an idea which many of them did many of them didn't really need any um direction but uh, we suggested it would be helpful in some cases to have an essay that covered certain areas and and um uh, that was true a little bit through the book, but most of the essays actually were were what the authors felt would be the appropriate way for them to honor Kenneth. And some of them, you know, are writing about things that, um, or work of architects that I'm not sure Kenneth is, is particularly supportive of. It's more sort of showing the fact that he has a range. He engages everything that's out there in the built life world, whether he thinks it's an appropriate way to do or not. He realizes it's built, it's in the world, one has to deal with it. And um, so that's, that's one of the reasons the book has such an enormous Mm -hmm. range and you have people like, you know, well, should we mention names, but maybe not on the podcast, I don't know, it's up to you, but you have Robert A.M. Stern, but you also have the Grafton architects. And so you have people that I don't believe would (laughs) normally appear together, (laughs) in book, if I may say so. Um, uh, Or even Kenneth and stern even though they were colleagues for many many years at columbia and, and have high regard for each other but they have they have crossed swords <laughs> yeah. which we make small reference to and even even bob has made some reference to but um uh i uh you know the actual sort of process of winnowing down we could talk about that that's that's really not something that there's a lot of happenstance and other things that happen. right 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 the fact is that our idea was that this this should be the book that Carla and I could do the way we. It would be something that we could do, and maybe other people might not be able to do, but that there we hoped would be, and we sort of suggest that in the acknowledgments, that we hope that this will stimulate other people to say, well, that but there's other things that need to be said, and there's other people that need to be involved, and that is for sure. And I do know that you know just shortly before our book came out, there was a publication. By the OASE group is that it, uh, Carla out of uh, the Netherlands, the Delft University group, mm-hmm. um, and it's it was actually a retrospective look back at the impact of of uh, critical regionalism mm-hmm. an essay just just that one essay, um, and there is also another group of essays to be published next year or f- fairly soon, um, edited by uh, uh, a former student of Kenneth but also mine at the University of Florida who. Um, who's collecting together uh, essays of Kenneth's that have actually become rather hard to get sort of maybe not the most well-known, but other essays that have been out of print for a number of years and trying to put them forward as a, as a kind of reader. Um, and they would, they were not the essays that Ken might've selected for his own <laughs> essay book, which he did uh, with FIDA a few years ago. Right. He's, but that just shows the fact that even his sort of Maybe what he doesn't think of as the most important contributions or the most memorable ones are are still of great importance to many um, practicing architects and also scholars and teachers.
1: I just uh, wanted to add that, um, you know, I think we did, uh, as as Robert has said, we aimed really to uh, cast a a very wide, uh, excuse me, a wide net uh, representative of, um, you know, colleagues, architects former students, um, and also people that would represent different parts of the globe, certainly Japan, France, Finland, Spain, Russia. Um, We were also um, wanting very much to show his uh, convictions about landscape architecture, um, architectural theory, urbanism, even architectural photography. So all of this, um, I think, was a bit of a factor in um, in trying to um, um, do this impossible task of, of choosing um, who would be contributing. Um, so, you know, I think um, there could be many other volumes that would be equally uh, persuasive about um, about his uh His contributions but yeah yeah, but that this one um really set out to try and and talk about um as much as possible from these um various perspectives his his commitment to um to uh, various areas of um or discourses that he's been so committed yeah
0: yeah and that's what i think is so interesting both about your book but also just about him generally and you know i'll admit as not being someone who studied architecture or has ever worked in architecture frankly but you know is a reader of him and of of people like him you know purely as a fan really uh you know not not really directly related to the to the work that i do aside from you know talking to people on this show um but what struck me was a, the range of interests that he had and the expansiveness of what he considered architecture writing. And Carla, you mentioned this very early on, that he was writing about politics and ecology and economics. And, uh, you know, he wrote, a, he kind of connected these things to cultural identity and labor, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's interesting to think about him and to think about your book as not just, um, you know, your book is not just uh, a book that's kind of in honor of him, but in a way, because he was so, is so prolific and wide ranging in his interests, that it kind of also seems to trace a recent history of architecture discourse. Uh, and so much of the things he was writing about years ago are now kind of very much more common in the discourse. And I'm I'm curious if you can kind of situate him in, the kind of history of architecture, writing and criticism and discourse, and how how he kind of changed that or or the the subjects that he started to uh, to kind of popularize that are now commonplace.
1: I, I mean, I would um, and I'm sure Robert has his own thoughts on this, but you know, I think his focus on really the ecological dimension of architecture was very pronounced early, early, early on in his work and um, his concern with um, urbanization as integral to our understanding of the landscape. Um, these are these are themes that I think are um, much more prevalent now, and um, I I think he was one of the first pioneers, really, to begin to talk about the ecological nature of architecture, and uh, and also I think uh, he was one of the first historians to pay close attention to um, to women, um, and that comes up um, I think in a number of the of the pieces um, in the book uh, that. Um, you know, he was um very supportive of, of um, looking at uh women in um architectural practice long before it became uh kind of mainstream.
2: I think I think it's also that um Kenneth has a very integrated view and that's actually rare, which is mm. which is not, not a good thing, but this integrated view that the um that Architecture is an incredibly complicated business, in that it is so entangled in the life world that you can't say, "Well,, well let's just discuss the style or let's talk about brutalism or let's talk about <laughs> that. You, uh, I mean, he can he can cross swords with the best of them on that if you want, but the fact is that he he doesn't he doesn't seem to have much interest in that because he wants to really talk about things. you know how how in the world do you solve this difficult problem? of making a building that will uh, be appropriate to its time, that will continue into the future, that will have connections to the past, that will be appropriate for its particular context, that would actually even possibly uh, uh, uplift uh, a certain way you know, or at least acknowledge and, and give space for a certain way of um, of, of living. And he talked, uh, you know, by the time when I first met him and worked with him, I, he, I was a post-professional student at Columbia, and he was, he was uh, just beginning to start formulating what would become the critical regionalism. Um, and then uh, during a little bit later in the same process, he started working on the tectonic culture. But, um, and for him, there were ways to uh, frame architecture that would take the discourse away from the stylistic or what he felt was a purely stylistic or formal discussion that was happening in terms of postmodernism, or at least historicist right. postmodernism. and of course, it came to a head exactly the year that I came to Columbia in 1981, when he, when he had his, you know, he dropped out of the Biennale when it became clear it was just going to be a celebration of, right, of kind of uh, stylistic architecture that, you know, virtually disconnected from any cultural, political, uh, social, uh, economic uh, issues, and and just be sort of set adrift. And he just basically said, "I can't." I can't even be part of this as a critic in a certain sense. I can't because it would seem as a kind of endorsement. And um, and for him, I think that was you know at the time I didn't. I just thought it was a natural thing that he would that that would be the way he would choose to go. But I uh, you know now from a different looking back in retrospect, I think he sees that as a key turning point in his um, criticism. The sense that it's time that he needed to be more activist at a certain sense a certain level. He had to be more proactive to. Make a statement, not just okay. This historicist architecture is not good, uh, or we shouldn't be doing it. But what else should we be doing? What, what are we? What What's wrong? What are, What are we missing? What do we need to be doing? And he actually began to construct a quite logical series of responses. And critical regionalism, of course, had it for an essay had an enormous yeah. impact, and um, and people still talk about it, and young people still talk about it. Um, because it, it it reads very freshly, especially given that, as Carlos said, a lot of the points he raised go directly to the issue of um, energy use and appropriate environmental response, and the engagement of landscape as a, a as a constructive and uh, way to uh, redress certain environmental wrongs of the past. Um, uh, but he also, I think, with tectonic culture, at least I've argued that he. He basically gave us a new way of looking at history, a way that has to do with the kinds of decision that the architect makes at the drawing board or at the at the computer. The the, the notion that, you know, we, we're not sort of stylistically flipping through books, or at least the vast majority of us are not. We have to make certain decisions about what's available in the way of technology. How can we build? As Lou said, we want to make the building be kind of eternal. Right. But we have to deal with the circumstances, and Ken is absolutely amazing with understanding that. The, the difficulty that Khan talked about a lot, the, the real difficulty of of how ma- you can make anything of quality out of the circumstances that you've been given, given the way that society has decided to structure itself and to sort of uh, support certain kinds of activity and not support other kinds of activity. Um, and so in that sense, I do think that Ken always has seen his writing as being resistant to certain typical modes of... of uh, economic and social and cultural definition, um, uh, that he feels is not appropriate. I mean, the word appropriate is, is more mine than his maybe. Um, but it, but that, uh, um, part of his, uh, or he sees as part of architecture's metier.
0: Yeah. I mean, do you have a sense of, of that, where that kind of, um, activist lens Came from. I mean, in the book, and in your book, you, that you talk about uh, him, kind of reading Hannah Arendt, and that having a big impact on him. But it's interesting how so much of his writing does, and and way ahead of his time in some some regards, pushes against this kind of stylistic way of talking about architecture, and and truly is is a type of activism in promoting ideas, whether they are environmental, whether it is about uh, kind of promoting women or architects who are kind of outside of the, the kind of core of the discourse or the modern project, if you want to call it that, where did that come from? I mean, because it seems like it was there really early on. Do you have a sense of, of kind of where that lens developed for him?
1: I, I just want to uh, underscore that. I think it came early on from his convictions about the importance of public space. Mm. Um, And part of that, uh, Came from his faith in uh, the British socialist project as right, he knew yeah. it. Um, it certainly came from Hannah Arendt uh, and her book *The Human Condition*, which he says, you know, is a book that he will probably never be able to escape. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, just this conviction um, that he has that um, architecture is somehow about bringing people together, that it has a very strong and political dimension, um, that public space um, is you know very important to um, our society and to um, and therefore to the architectural profession. Uh, And in some ways, you know, I think it's this, um, the questions that he's raising about public space today when so much is happening um, virtually um, because of the pandemic, you know, I think he's at the moment very concerned about um, the way that Zoom is now um, our um, our ways of gathering. And, you know, yeah. I think he sees that as very um, inadequate in many ways. That, you know, as he says, spontaneity is really inhibited by Zoom. Um, and so much of our life is compromised by Zoom. And, you know, he has this uh, great reluctance to... Um, to meet virtually, um, so in a way, um, you know, I think that this conviction about public space was um, essential to his um, to shaping his worldview early, early on. Uh, and then I just, you know, wanted to to talk a little bit too about um, what what Robert was saying about his. Um, I don't know, I don't I don't think it was wor- the word was synthetic, but somehow the way that he's able to um, draw many, many different threads into his thinking, teaching and writing. And uh, mm-hmm. I know that in my early formation, he was always telling me about the importance of a dialogical mode of thought. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that comes up again and again uh, as his, uh, you know, modus operandi in a way that... Uh, He's always moving between um, larger concepts regarding how we should live in the world and, you know, what a nation is and what a society should do (laughs) for its people. And and yet at the same time, uh, he's um, putting that in dialogue with how actual practitioners function um, and um, about what he calls the poetics of construction and the adequate handling of materials um so you know he's always moving back and forth between Mm -hmm. material evidence and and these larger bigger questions facing us
2: i think this is a really important point to of what to reinforce what carlos said first i think he was formed very early and i think and this is all before i knew him but the experience in the uk uh at school and also at the aa but also after school i mean he had um the smithsons as teachers um, mm-hmm. And then the work that was being done, and of course at that time it was quite an activist uh, profession in the UK. They were building a huge amount of public housing, the London uh, Housing Authority and such. Mm, and his right. involvement in that set a sort of expectation on his part that 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 uh, the larger society and government was involved in a in a proactive, positive way in uh, making life better for the general community and you know, of course he's the first one to trace really sort of uh, frighteningly the sort of fall of that whole idea in britain and the rise of thatcherism and mm-hmm. uh, which would be the exact opposite and then you know right. inability to ever return to that um but i think it formed him in a way that when he came to the u.s and, and confronted the sort of uh, ecological sort of <laughs> sort of yeah. nightmare of the northeast um first exposure when he first came to teach at princeton and then and then uh and then uh having a rant in New York and giving lectures at the new school which he was able to attend in addition to reading her book he was able to be part of those um discussions in some way while he was um while he was teaching at princeton and also at columbia um i i think that makes that makes an enormous difference and uh i think that the short but but i think very important period that he practiced with douglas stevens and the kind of people that he met in that office Mm -hmm. and the kinds of work that they did um uh sort of set the table for his ability to interact with with architects and i think this synthetic notion that that uh which is a good term integrative i think also another the the way that he's able to move back and forth from the largest social questions which when you confront a working architect with these sort of bigger issues it's just well what am i supposed to do with that and and then but then he moves right back down the scale and he talks about how do you make a door handle and how do you how do you make a kind of like you know someone like alto or someone makes a door handle that that basically gives you a kind of a, a a response when you grip it that, that sort of unravels the whole building for you and sort of puts everything into place, and he's able to move back and forth the way you have to as an architect. That's the that's what's critical. And most critics choose to stay, you know. I would say uh, at one end of that spectrum, and and uh, the architects are just left with, uh, well, this is all good for reading in school, but um, but what is this, you know? It's difficult to make a decision. You have a limited budget. You have your client has certain demands and they as what Khan called the circumstances. And I think, Kahn uh, uh, Frampton has been hugely helpful in giving architects a kind of framework in which to grapple with these realities that still allows a kind of idealism and a, and a kind of pro- yeah. positive, uh, notion about making the world a better place, which underlies all his writings.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's exactly right. And you you started answering exactly where I wanted to take this conversation into. It's kind of my final couple of questions because I wanted to come back to this idea that he always he still thinks about himself or refers to himself as an architect who writes. And uh, you know, as I told you, kind of my background before we started recording, that's that's kind of similar to my own experience as somebody who's a, a, a designer who also writes. And I'm. I'm interested in how that identity shapes the writing, or how he uh, maybe approaches both of these positions. You know, the importance of still thinking of himself as an architect, but also as a writer or theorist. And you know, I guess it, I guess it is that that kind of dialogical nature that we're talking about, and being able to zoom in to the details, but also zoom out. Can you talk a little bit more about that kind of his? Uh, maintaining the identity of architect and why that's important, both to him and kind of self-identity, but also to his writing?
1: I think for, for, for Ken, um, architecture's boundaries are, as we've been saying, are very um, expansive. Um, and, and I think they extend uh, outward in, in two directions. I mean, first is this real concern that with um, how buildings are real things that are put together. Yeah, (laughs) Um, with um, with craft and with care and with um, details and uh, with a deep appreciation for um, the nature of materials. So um, I think there's this sense that um, there's this kind of uh, appreciation for the craftsman, for the artisan. Mm. And, and yet the other um, direction that he's pushing the boundaries of architecture is in, in this larger um, field of social and, and political responsibilities. Um, And and I think he sees that the architect has to deal with both of those things, that the architect um, has to yeah, constantly be aware of the details of the real world um, and the way that we encounter um, the life world in all of its um, messiness. And at the same time, um, there is the, that the vocation of the architect also means that you have to be engaged with the world Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. that brings with it political implications. Mm
2: -hmm. I think that, uh, Kenneth realizes that, you know, buildings are enormous investments. Uh, irrespective of who's putting the money up for it. It's, it's an investment of, of a piece of the earth. It's an investment of money. It's an investment of energy. It's an investment of, um, of all manner of capital. And that the, uh, irrespective of whether it's a private or a public project, that there is a kind of uh, obligation in his in his way of seeing the practice um, to attain the most uh, kind of uh, experiential um, uh, power or experiential sort of quality from the uh, sort of least investment of all of these resources of society. And uh, his criticism is that there's a, a vast number of buildings that seem to go in the opposite direction. They, they invest huge amounts of resources in buildings that have virtually no impact on uh, many people's lives, or at least not a beneficial impact, mm-hmm. uh, which for him is just unethical. And there's an ethical sort of uh, undercurrent that is really powerful and that he he admits to it even during a period when uh many critics were sort of suggesting that somehow architecture history had to be sort of neutral it had to sort of step back and not be engaged and not be uh committing itself so to speak and just sort of just sort of be like a sort of a neutral coach or a neutral referee or something <laughs> for him it's just not possible it's not possible he is not a bone of that in his body i, I just think he's uh And it's, it's what, it's what makes him so enjoyable to be around because he has, he has strong opinions about, about things. And, and when he phrases it, um, he, but he always phrases it in a very constructive manner. So he's, it's not just, Oh, this is just no good. I mean, he might say that in private, but, but (laughs) he he wants to say it's no good, but I'm going to show you why, and I'm going to show you how it should be better. And I'm going to tell you why it should be better. And, and, um, and, and I'll reference it with other examples because of course his range of the, what, yeah. what he has available in his head is just, well, Carla and I can attest to this from years of experience, but it's just extraordinary what he can hold um, in terms of, uh, if he gives a response to a question, it's encyclopedic. He can <laughs> touch base to everything without any notes. And we know, Carl and I have known him some instances where he's written some essays without notes on an airplane. Um, oh, wow which have just blown us away um when we were sort of <laughs> when we saw the result um, <laughs> some quite famous essays I might say so um, there's a power of concentration there which um, you know that's that's perhaps Kenneth the writer um, uh, but I think uh, he never loses track of the which is why we felt it was really important to put the word life world in the title is that that this mm-hmm. um, it is a large t- uh, concept, it's a super large concept, it's all encompassing. And that's exactly what architecture has to deal with. This is not a, this is not an art. This is not a choice. This is not an art for the sake of art. This is a, this is a piece of work that people not including the architect have to grapple with for, uh, perhaps the rest of their lives. It's something that I, you know, have come to emphasize with my students as well. I say, you know, you, you're making things and you will never have to suffer in this building but you have to make it so the people who live there, uh, uh, feel at least that their life is, is not, uh, made less powerful and Kenneth, I mean, less, uh, sort of rich and, and Kenneth has always been, uh, pushing, you know, it's never good enough. It's never good enough. And, um, and even, and you, and you can talk to some of the architects who he has, so to speak, promoted by, by, by publishing their work quite early. And he, he is a, a very difficult. He can be a very tough critic, especially on people who he, who he feels to some degree he has been responsible for making more um, present in the larger world because he, he publicized their work when they were young people, and I, I've been involved in several of those encounters, which were quite refreshing. And, mm. uh, <laughs> and so, so he has a sense of he has a sense of loyalty, and people feel a certain loyalty to him. But he has a sense of loyalty to certain ideas and certain uh, people as well. Right. Um but it's also this enormous sense of social responsibility. And it, that is not just uh, a kind of catchphrase. It, 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 it has to do with all the things that the social world is connected with. Um, and so that's, that's uh,
0: mm-hmm.
2: well, I don't, I don't know quite how to go further with that, but anyway.
0: Yeah. No, no, no. I I love that. And I think that's a, a really nice way to... Um, to to kind of wrap up this conversation so I'm going to ask you the last question that is the question I used to end all of all of these conversations and actually in a weird way brings this full circle because you we started the the conversation talking about uh his belief in kind of the power of books and and the amount of books that he's been involved in and so I'm just curious to wrap up what are both of you reading right now
1: well I'm um I'm part of a new world now in that I'm teaching um, on the Navajo Nation and oh, uh, very committed to um, to trying to be a catalyst as a non-native uh, for discussions that um, I think are at the heart of um, Ken Frampton's writings on critical regionalism and certainly um, Paul Ricoeur's writings um, Uh, And, you know, I think asking questions about what it means for for my uh, Navajo students to remain somehow grounded in their own um, cultural traditions Mm -hmm. and at the same time be citizens of a globalized world and You know, it's it's a it's a very delicate dance, and um, I've been working um, closely with someone named Ted Hojola, who is at the University of New Mexico, who's very interested in issues of indigenous design and planning. So I've been um, immersing myself in theories of um, the seven uh, generation model, a very different way of understanding. Uh, landscape, um, understanding kinship, um, understanding the built environment in in a totally different way from my um, uh, Western European uh, formation. Um, So, uh, I have been um, reading work on um, concepts of of the sacred and of landscape related to um, the uh, Native North American uh, tribes.
2: Hmm. Um, I'm actually sort of uh, neck deep in a huge second revised and expanded uh, edition of my Lewis Kahn for Fiden. Mm. I just received something this morning I have to now look at when we finish this discussion. Um, <laughs> it's a preliminary layout. So, um, But it's going to be uh, unbelievably, it's a 512 page book and it's going to get bigger. Wow. Um, but it's also an expanded format. But as a result of that, I've, and that book was first published in 2005. I basically wrote it 2003. So I've, I've been doing a huge amount of um, reading up until this point um, that was related to that um, because there's been a lot of material that's come out, but I, the thing I'm reading now, which is most interesting is a, is a biography, I guess you could call it a sort of intellectual biography of Leon Battista Alberti mm. by um, Anthony Grafton. Um, who's not an architect, who's a kind of cultural writer, uh, particularly about medieval. And But he has uh, made me aware uh, of the fact that uh, an enormous number of sort of um, points of view or anecdotes that, that Khan uh, talked about uh, or articulated uh, actually could be traced back to Alberti. And it's not mm. well known whether he... It, he wasn't a sort of prolific reader khan wasn't but he did he did have mm. conversations with people and then he would ask them their opinion about books and then he would he would as he said he read the first page and that's <laughs> he was always interested in the beginning but um anyway i every every time i sit down to, to tackle another chapter i seem to come up with it, and i was like oh okay so that mm. that's where that came from and um uh i mean i've uh, the house in the city in the city of the house that that's clearly, easily traced back to Alberti, but there's a, there's a number of others that have to do with the nature of monumentality and the nature of um, what's, what is a quality uh, product and how the quality product doesn't have anything to do with the cost of the materials. It has to do with the the um, skill and the craft that went into its making, which is, which is an, almost a direct quote from Kahn's monumentality, but it's also a direct quote from Alberti's art of painting. Um, uh, which I wasn't aware of or until I was reading this. And the other book I'm reading is, um, and I don't remember the exact title, but it's a it's a biography of uh, the Austrian writer Anton Schweig, His last years after he was in exile. Um, it was made into a movie. Actually, it's quite a quite a good uh, book. But it doesn't. It sort of steers clear of the time frame where which Zweig writes about in his autobiography, which is a fantastic autobiography. Um, but he drops he drops the autobiography about nineteen in the late nineteen thirties and then um that's sort of where this is picked up because he, he committed suicide in, in the forties, um, living in uh, Brazil, if I remember correctly. Anyway, I'm reading that. Um and I'm also reading a book that one of my friends referenced that I quote had to read because he's absolutely nuts about the partisan review. So it's called George being George. And it's about George Plumpton. It's just That's anecdotes about George Plumpton's life, which is, uh, which is, which is just a, a riot because <laughs> I don't know how that guy got to know so many people. I mean, he's, he was, he's wired into everything. He's amazing. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, so I, at this point, you know, I, I have to say during the pandemic, I have, I've lost count recently, but I, I was somewhere around, um, a hundred books that I had read since the beginning of the I'm I'm reading about two a week um, because this, you know, this forced isolation, I'm determined to make some good use of it because uh, I can't travel. I can't lecture. I can't do any of the things that I actually spend probably too much time doing can't teach overseas, which is what I was scheduled to do. Um, Mm -hmm. And so uh, I'm determined to sort of my library has always stayed way ahead of my reading. That is, I buy more than I can read. And uh, I'm determined to try at least close the gap. I don't think I'm going to be able to close it completely, but I'm I'm working <laughs> on it. <laughs> uh, and of I course, love that. You know, and of course, when Carl and I were working on this book, we we read quite a lot of we we went. The essays were were quite something for us to also read. Yeah, and just sort of tailoring and sort of pushing a few people in one direction or another to make sure different issues got covered in the book was. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it was it was uh, it was interesting. I will not do another one. I'll, uh, someone else can do the next one because uh, that, that, this is about it for me.
0: <laughs> I love that. I'm very jealous of your your book reading over the pandemic. That was my goal also, and somehow I still feel like I don't have enough time. Um, I I just want to say that I I loved this book as somebody like I said who's outside of architecture and was familiar with critical regionalism and the the broad strokes of, of Frampton's work. It was so nice to spend time with this and put it in context and and kind of understand his influence uh you know kind of so much better and it was it was great talking to both of you about him and about the book and about uh kind of the evolution of of architecture discourse really and i know you both mentioned that you did not want to talk too much about your own work but you did kind of slip some things in at the end so we should uh we should do this again where we can talk about about some of your other projects a bit but thank you so much for uh for being on the podcast i really really enjoyed this thank you thank you this episode was recorded on December 21st, 2020. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and it's scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.